Amen. Well, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. In uh, Romans chapter 3, I believe this was one of our di- disciple challenge memory verses. We have, I, hope, I hope that you completed the discipleship challenge uh, because today is the day that you can go over to the table in the gym and, and get your reward. They'll give you the chance to say whatever of the memory verses you want. I know some of you were a little upset about Romans 1, 15 to 16. Or was it 16 to 17? That one gotcha. Am I right? I memorized them too, so I'm right there with you. Um, but, but here we have one of the most famous passages in the Bible. In Romans 3, 23 is the verse, but Romans 3, 21 to 31. And just to give you a review, the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans to the church Christians in Rome. And he's in the middle of this three-chapter segment where he's establishing what sin is, who's guilty, and how we can go to heaven. He's gone around from group to group, the Greeks, the Jews, the Gentiles in general. He's gone all around to show that we're all guilty before a holy God, and therefore God must do something to help us. Uh, And so here we are in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the lead-in, and the first point is actually the only point. It's a one-point sermon. And the point is this. Receive the free gift of eternal life. Receive the free gift of eternal life. Sometimes when it's a one-point sermon or a two-point sermon, people are like, yes, we're getting out of here early. Let me reassure you, that is not the case. Because in this one point, there are four sub-points that we are going to dig into. These sub-points all unpack one main idea. They say in preacher school, if you can hit one nail over and over through the sermon, people will remember it better. So I did it. Number one, receive the free gift of eternal life. Paul is addressing the complaint of the Jews here. The complaint of the Jews is this. If the righteousness of God is free, if Gentiles can just get saved and go to heaven, what was the point of the whole Old Testament? Why Moses? And the Jews were accusing Paul of just sweeping aside the Old Testament. He's worked really hard to demonstrate that the purpose of the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law, that's the Old Testament, particularly Moses, the first five books, and the prophets, that just summarizes the rest of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Sometimes people are like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is scary. I like the God of the New Testament. No, you don't understand. The Old Testament got the world ready for Christ to come. That's what it was. Any verse in the Old Testament is somehow getting the world ready for Christ to come. The New Testament is really just God getting the world ready for Christ to come again. That's how simple the Bible is. But in the Old Testament, Moses got the world ready for Christ to come by looking ahead to it. So it's not like in the New Testament, Christmas started and the Old Testament was just thrown out the window. No, the law and the prophets actually pointed to the coming of Christ. And this idea of the righteousness of God being manifested apart from the law was a radical thought for the Jews. 
They thought they had to keep the Ten Commandments. There's all these rules in Leviticus, Numbers. we got to keep every rule in there. Rule, 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 rule. And, and Jesus comes down and says, I, I'm going to fulfill the law for you. I'm going to fulfill all of it. So Moses wasn't showing you like 10 ways to get up Mount Sinai. He was showing you 10 reasons you'll never get up Mount Sinai. That's the whole point of the law. Here's why you'll never walk your way up to heaven. And you're supposed to, at the end of that, say, I can't do it. But the Jews didn't get that. They were like, we're doing pretty good. We're actually going to make it up there. And Paul's like, no. You need a righteousness from God. The idea of righteousness is you being right in God's sight. Acceptable to Him. It can include uh, morally you're acceptable to him spiritually. You're in a spiritual state that's acceptable to him. Relationally, you're good. All those things wrapped up mean you're right in God's sight. And here's the thing. It says that a righteousness from God has to be manifested outside of you. You can't become this way on your own. God has to hand it to you. That's why it's a free gift. Receive the free gift of eternal life. It's free. It's free. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hey, do you want to go to heaven? If you want to go to heaven, you have to receive a free gift. How many of you have seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Here's a picture. Have you seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Of course you've seen it. Everyone's seen it. If you haven't seen it, what planet are you living on? But let me share with you the backstory of It's a Wonderful Life. Because when it first came out, it was a box office flop. Hardly anybody wanted to go see it. Director Frank Capra's 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life, is sacred in the holiday movie pantheon today. Might not be as quotable as A Christmas Story, which came out in 83, or as lyrical as 1966's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But the story of George Bailey has a universal message behind it, that endures more than 70 years later, though the movie is the quintessential Christmas tale today, when it was first released in 46, audiences and critics were lukewarm toward the picture, resulting in a box office disappointment that actually ended up killing the director's production company. It, killed, it tanked his production company because it did so poorly. Wow. Well, how did that happen and what changed? Uh, there was another movie that came out right around the same time. It's a Wonderful Life with, with its inflated budget. Old-timey values was met with a whimper at the box office, making only an estimated $3.3 million against its $3.7 million budget at lost money. The other movie that came uh, out right around that time, The Best Years of Our Lives, won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Everyone wanted to see that movie. The only thing It's a Wonderful Life won at the Academy Awards was, uh, was a one technical award for special effects because people really liked the fake snow. You know what I like about that movie? The fake snow. Let's give them a little prize for the fake snow. It didn't do well. It's a Wonderful Life was seen as a flat disappointment destined for anonymity until in 1974, due to a clerical error, it entered the public domain because the film's copyright holder simply forgot to file for a renewal. 
This meant that TV stations everywhere could play It's a Wonderful Life all day and all night and not have to pay a cent for it. It was free. Networks aren't necessarily shy about exploiting free Christmas content, and the film's reemergence on television gave Capra's story a new life. The director couldn't believe it, he told the Wall Street Journal. He said he felt like a parent who found out later that his kid grew up to be president. Suddenly, this movie became one of the most popular movies ever. It was free. Finally, networks began to want to pay for exclusive rights to it, and the original owner bought or got the copyright back in the court system. Of course, they're like, who let this happen? We should be making money off of this. So now NBC pays a hefty premium to have exclusive rights to showing it a few times during the Christmas season. The film that killed a production company 70 years ago is now an annual television event and a part of countless family traditions around the globe. Here's the point. Here's the point. Once it became free, then it became priceless. I want you to remember the word free. The gospel became free. God's righteousness became free. Free. And now it is priceless because it costs you nothing. Receive the free gift of eternal life. Now in Paul's day... There were many gods they believed in, and therefore there were many reasons to believe gods, the gods were angry with you, and therefore there were many reasons you could, many ways you could go about making the gods good with you again. People around him, Greeks and Romans, would bring the gods' offerings and gifts and go through elaborate ceremonies because they wanted to make their gods happy. Our faith is different. In our faith, God made the offering. In our faith, God gave it. God gave it for us. He gave it so that you didn't have to worry about his judgment anymore. So here's the gospel that Paul is sharing with the Jews and the Gentiles alike. It's great news. We have to make sure we don't turn to dead ends on our way to heaven. Dead ends will not take you to glory. Somebody once said the, the largest religion in our day is now called good personism. Good personism. I'm good. Yeah, but that's different than I'm saved. I'm good means you don't think you need a free gift from heaven to get into God's kingdom. I'm good means you think you're going to stroll right in based on your merit. That can't be further from the truth. The only way you and I are getting into heaven, the only way you and I are going to become good enough for God is if he gives us his righteousness. It's his, he gives it. So number one, receive the free gift of eternal life. Ask me how. Jot this down. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It says, for there is no distinction. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? What that means is, faith is such a loosey-goosey word these days. Oh, I have faith. What does that mean? It means that you believe the truth about Jesus and it means you're acting like God's telling the truth. It's not just a thought, like I believe two and two is four. It's you're acting like God is telling the truth about Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we find out what makes Jesus so special. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What makes Jesus so special? He is God the Son. He lived before he lived. Nothing separates Jesus from God. And therefore, the divine stepped down to save us. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? He is the plan. He is the plan. Sometimes people say they're Christians, but when you, when you ask them about Jesus and whatnot, they're like, oh, I don't believe that. And then you ask them about sin, and they're like, oh, I don't believe that either. Then you ask them about who goes to heaven and hell. No. And, and the Bible, they're like, uh-uh. And you're like, oh, okay, just stop calling yourself a Christian. All right? Let me clearly define for you what it means to be a Christian. You believe that we are born into sin, and that after we're born into sin, we willfully choose to sin as well. You believe that that creates a problem that no person can solve for themselves. You believe that God's law came to show the problem and to reveal that God sent a solution. And then you believe that the solution is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he came down, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, was thrown into a tomb, and rose again on the third day. While he was on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins and mine. Now he sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God. He's real, he's alive, and he's ruling heaven right now. And anyone who calls out to him by faith receives the free gift of eternal life and is born again and saved forever. If you say yes to everything I just said, you're a Christian. If you change anything about what I just said, you believe something other than the faith that has been handed down to us. And at that point, you're just making it up as you go, right? You're just making it up. You're just making things up in your own head, and that's where your faith is coming from. Have you received the free gift of eternal life? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because the problem was so great, God himself had to come down to rescue us. There was a Roman poet, an ancient poet named Horace, who was giving advice to other ancient playwrights because he was getting so frustrated that these young whippersnappers were, were doing the same thing. They were creating plot problems, and then they were bringing a god on the stage to solve all the problems. So this ancient Roman poet Horace said this, Do not bring a god onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a god to solve it. You can picture him being all cranky, right? Stop with the gods fixing the problems of your plot. All right, be creative or write bigger problems. Which is kind of awesome because Christmas is all about a God-sized problem. If you think you can do it, you disagree with Christmas. Christmas is all about God saying, I have to do it for you. I have to come down and do it for you. Receive the free gift of eternal life by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you saved? When did you get saved? And have you been baptized to tell the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? If not, I would challenge you to get baptized next week. Don't put it off another minute. Proudly proclaim your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you. All right, receive the free gift of eternal life. How? By putting your faith in Christ. Now ask me why. Well, I'm glad you asked. Write this down. Because you must be justified before the judge. Because you must be justified before the judge. We have two or three gigantic theological words here. Precious words in our faith. 
And this idea of being justified is a gigantic part of our theology. Okay? Justification is a huge doctrine in the Christian faith that you have to understand. Justification brings us into the courtroom. So Paul is bringing us here into the courtroom. Romans loved their law, had their courts, wrote their rules, very elaborate legal system. And, and so here he walks us into the courtroom and suddenly we're standing before a judge. And he says here that in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's the word, by his grace as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift. He says first here that we have fallen short of the glory of God. To fall short means to stop short, to fall behind, to not cross the line. So this could be a runner who, who falls short, doesn't finish. This could be someone who is competing and, and doesn't get to the goal. You, you have fallen short. You have failed to complete or, or to accelerate where you were supposed to be. You have to understand that that's what God says our spiritual condition is when we begin. We have fallen short. We have stopped short. We have failed to cross the line and to meet His standards. From a legal standpoint, that could mean that you failed to meet the legal requirements. You, you broke the law. You didn't keep the law. Therefore, you must be justified because you have major legal problems in God's heavenly courtroom. Major legal problems. And here we are in the courtroom. Here's a picture of a gavel. It's like we're in, we're in the courtroom <clears throat> and there will be a judgment. And, and right there, after your judgment, when that hammer hits, it's over. When your fate is decided, there is no second chance. There will be a judgment. You will stand before a judge. You have to get right in that courtroom now. So he says here, we have fallen short and we are justified. How? By his grace as a gift. We have to be justified, but it happens by his grace as a gift. That means we're all God's law breakers. And I've shared this before. One author put it very well. He said, breaking God's law is like breaking a pane of glass. Though you strike it at one point, you break the entire sheet. You can't break it a little. And that's true. When you break God's law, when I break God's law, we might break one part of it, but we've broken it all. We have broken God's law. So you can't say, well, I've only you know, lied a few times. You're a liar. Well, I've only stolen a little. You're a thief, right? So we are lawbreakers, and therefore we're wrong in God's court, and something must change our legal status. We must be justified before the judge. When we, when we say that we're good people, and we think that we're good people, Really, we have to fess up. We're, we're, honestly, what we are is we're forgetful people, aren't we? We're really good at forgetting what we've done in this life. Most of your sins are now buried in the sands of time. But they'll all be dug up on Judgment Day. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, we'll be humiliated, appalled, shocked, mortified, as our deeds are told 
freely to all. The Bible even says every hidden thing will be brought to light. It's terrifying. But thank God he sent his son down from heaven. And on the cross, we find out what happened. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins. He fulfilled every legal demand God has. He did it. He did it. The word justified, a good way to remember what that means, justified, is if I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if, that's not original to me. You might be like, ooh, I didn't think of it. I remembered it though, so I'm sharing it with you. I'm justified in God's court. What does that mean? And listen to this very carefully. It means when God looks at me, he sees me just as if I'd never sinned. Just try at the family party telling your sibling, guess what? I've never sinned once. You'll get slapped. All right. You'll get slapped. But when God looks down, if someone were to be like, hey, tell me about Eddie over there. God's like, when I look at it, it's as if, it's as if he's never sinned once. Once? Never once. That's what it means to be justified. Now you're like, how can that be when I've sinned so much? It's because when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ in you. And therefore, the righteousness of Jesus becomes yours. It's a free gift. Absolutely you don't deserve it. Absolutely you can't earn it. You must be justified before the judge. Listen, God will never be impressed even by your best effort. Only the finished work of Christ pleases him. Nobody will be congratulated for entering heaven as an achievement. Christ will be worshipped for receiving us as his guests. That's how you get into heaven. No one will be clapping for you. Everyone will be clapping for Christ. Number one, receive the free gift of eternal life. How? By putting your faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, because you must be justified before the judge. Justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Why else? Write this down. Because you must be unshackled from your chains. Because you must be unshackled from your chains. The idea of justification is like I'm in court and I'm in trouble. The idea, moving on now, of another great theological word, redemption. Redemption. How many of you have heard that word before? Redemption. Like in the Bible, right? But what does it mean? You might think of like, oh, it's like redeeming a coupon. No, it's not that. Redemption is a word that means buying a slave out of slavery. Buying a prisoner out of bondage. Redemption. To redeem means to be set free. So first we were in the courtroom. Now we're in the slave market. Now we're in the slave market. Or deep in the dungeon and it hasn't gone well. Our judgment is over. This answers the question. Well, let's read it first. It says, We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption means this. What is your relationship to sin? Slavery. What is the relationship between you and sin? Slavery. Bondage. Uh, dungeon. That's your relationship to sin. So then what is your need? My need is to be set free. Here's a picture of bondage. You've got an inmate. You've got somebody shackled and not going anywhere. Trial. 
conviction, incarceration, and what you're looking at there on the screen is God's description of your spiritual condition. You are bound by sin. You and I, we, we can't get free. We can't, we can't bail ourselves out. We are bound, shackled, behind bars. And that, if you agree with that, you'll know your need. I need to be redeemed. I need someone to show up and get me out. If you disagree with that, if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm barely a sinner. I, every once in a while I tell a little white lie. But other than that, I'm clean. You don't, even, you don't even hear the chains dragging on the floor behind you. And you're in denial. You must be unshackled from your chains. It says here that the redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. The idea is this. God paid a high price to buy you. The price was the death of his son. Those people who live thinking they're good enough to get into heaven disgrace God's sacrifice. It's worthless to them. God says, I've sent my son and paid the highest price to purchase you out of slavery. And people who are like, I don't need that, treat God's sacrifice as if it was unnecessary and worthless. That's horrible. But if you admit your need, you realize that a high price must be paid to spring you out, to get you free. Now, don't get too theological with this. Don't push it too far. This doesn't mean that the devil was holding you hostage and God needed to pay him to get you out. It doesn't go that far. It doesn't mean that there's some sort of a ransom to Satan. But this picture shows what has to happen. This idea of a ransom needing to be paid to bring you back home shows the severity of your sin, the the hopelessness of your condition. And Christ, one way that God's describing what Jesus did on the cross is like he's paying the ransom so you could be broken free from your sin. You're trapped. How many of you have been up <clears throat> in the uh, Hancock building before to like the signature room and the signature lounge? You go on that express elevator and you shoot up. So when our Ukrainian friends were in town back in October, we took them to a conference in Canada and then I always love to bring them, you know, we have guests from Romania or whatever, we bring them to Chicago, show them around. And then I love going up to the signature lounge. Not, not the signature room, the restaurant, because it's really expensive. But if you go up one more floor, there's a lounge. And, and you can just sit up there and drink coffee and enjoy the view for a lot cheaper. And they have little appetizers too, you know. So, uh, so we went up there, and, and we went up to the signature lounge, and we're looking out over the city, and they're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, they, they had never been up in a building that high. Uh, and, and so we're having, you know, quesadillas and appetizers and coffee and enjoying the view. And then, you know, you get back over to the elevator, and now you got to go back down, all right? And those things are like, like they're, you know, you get a little nervous going into there. And so we went down the elevator, and then here, to my, to my horror, a news story comes out November 19th. All right, this is like less than a month after we were on this same elevator. Elevator at one of Chicago's tallest skyscrapers plunges 84 floors after hoist rope breaks. What? I was, I was on that elevator. Chicago. It took nearly three hours to rescue six people stuck in an elevator in Chicago's fourth tallest skyscraper, the Hancock Center. Call it the Hancock Center, all right? I don't like this renaming of things. It's the Hancock Center. One person stuck in the elevator said at the beginning, I believe we were going to die. We were going down, and then I felt that we were falling down, and then I heard a loud noise. Clack, 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 clack. 
just what you want in an elevator. This man's wife said the elevator was moving fast, and then suddenly dust started filtrating into the elevator. She said they found out later that they had careened from the 95th floor down to the 11th floor. When rescuers scrambled to find the stuck elevator, then it got stuck, lodged in the building somewhere. Early Friday morning, there were no openings between floors because of the building's blind shaft style layout. So this, this is an express elevator. There's no doors. There's like door up there, door down here, and concrete in between. So they're like, where are they? And they gotta, then they got to go in there and try and save them. The rescue crew had to hammer out a concrete wall in the parking garage of the 11th floor. Cables were dangling next to the cracked door where the people trapped in the elevator were pulled to safety. Now, I know some of you who are afraid of heights right now are about to preach to all of us, and you're going to be like, that's why I never go up there. See, I tried to tell you. You Humans belong on the ground. I don't know why we're building these structures. And I'm like, amen. (laughs) Amen. I mean, the cables had to at least be frayed while I was going down that elevator. I don't know. Maybe I was the last straw. They can't prove anything. But this is frightening. I was in that elevator. And what what would it be like for three hours to be stuck? And I like what one firefighter said. He said, you know, the, the only options of rescuing them were to punch through the wall or to rappel down from the 95th floor. He said, we're not Batman. We went through the wall. Now, I'm using this to portray to you something spiritual. You, when it comes to your relationship with sin, the Bible is saying this. You are trapped. You're trapped. You're in that elevator. You can't get out. Your best efforts are like jumping. Is this working? Is it moving yet? You can't get out. You're trapped. You need a rescue. And listen, Jesus came down from a lot higher than the 95th floor to save you. He came down to rescue you. And if he, if he shows you your need and cracks through that wall and opens the door and says, get out, and you're like, I'm good. I'm making a lot of improvement. I'm doing a lot better with my temper. You don't get it. You're trapped. You need a rescue. This is what Christmas is all about. Receive the free gift of eternal life. Put your faith in Christ. Be justified before the judge. Be redeemed from your bondage. Be unshackled from your chains. And then jot this down. Because you must be reconciled to your creator. Because you must be reconciled to your creator. So we talked about justification. We talked about redemption. And then it says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Wow, say that word five times fast. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. First, we go to the legal court, we learn about justification. Then we go to the slave market, and we learn about redemption. Now we're in the temple. Now Paul takes us to the temple. He's a brilliant writer. This idea of propitiation is where we get our doctrine of atonement. So let me tell you the history here. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. We learned about this last year when we looked at Moses. This was a tent of meeting. It's where God and man could come together and meet. And zooming in here, you have the the tent or the tabernacle with the holy place on the outside 
and then you have the most holy place on the inside. And here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, get it? So the Ark was put in the Holy of Holies, and the Old Testament theology was clear. This, this represented God's earthly throne, where heaven and earth meet, and God dwells with man. It's a new Eden. It's, it's where God and man meet. And, and it's so holy that no one could go in there. The high priest got to go in there one time a year and he had to wear bells on his robe because if he messed up, he died. And they, there was a rope attached to him so they could drag him back out because God's presence was not open. And when he went in, he, prov he provided an offering and then he would sprinkle some blood on the ark, on, in the room. Now, Paul draws from that imagery. And here's what he says. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The idea there is that now the atonement happens in Christ. Now, the place where God meets with man in glory is the person of Jesus Christ. He, there's a lot of symbolism wrapped up here, not only in this verse, but in other verses. But Jesus is the offering in God's presence. His blood is what's shed. And He is even the place where God and man meet. He's all of it. Do you see how the Old Testament shows us the new? Jesus is all of that. And do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain of the temple? It was torn top to bottom. God's way of saying, my presence is now open to you through him. What a glorious truth. This is the doctrine of atonement. But you have to agree that there is a big problem between you and God. There's a wall. You're not welcome in his presence, and only his son can reconcile you to him. Only his son can shed the blood that pacifies God's wrath to welcome you into his presence. The doctrine of atonement comes from many places, but Leviticus 16 talks about how the penalty for sin is death. And you need a substitute. They used to use animals, but that only got them out of trouble for a year. Then Jesus was called, what was Jesus called? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Why were they sacrificing all these animals in the Old Testament? To get us ready for the Lamb of God, the one sacrifice that would take away all the sins. This is the doctrine of atonement. Atonement. Now Jesus is where God's heavenly throne meets earth. Now only the blood of Christ turns away God's terrible wrath. Jesus is the place now where God pardons the sins of the world. John Stott said this, The essence of sin is human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Brilliant. Here's the bottom line. If you are on a do-it-yourself plan trying to get to heaven, you won't get to heaven. Jesus did it for you. You have to receive the free gift of eternal life. We started remodeling our upstairs bathroom around Thanksgiving. Around Thanksgiving, and we're still at it. But here's a picture when I started to get to work. The bathroom behind me, I'm tearing it up. I recruited some help because my son loves to start demolishing things. So here's the next picture. Jared was going to work, um, and he was 
hammering away at the wall. Thankfully, he did not hammer through the wall into our bedroom, which was one of his goals. Uh, but he, he was up there pounding away. And here's another picture. It's Cassie was going to work too and keep going through them. And we finally started to make the place look better. Um, you can keep going. And there's what it looks like now. That's pretty cool, huh? It came together really well. That's what it means to be a do-it-yourself project, right? I did it. I got some help from my friends. I did it. I did it all by myself. And a lot of people are on the do-it-yourself project, right? I'm going to do it myself. God's going to be happy with what I've done. And I just have to tell you, if you're still on the do-it-yourself plan, it's, it's time to put the tools down and call for help, all right? The damage you've done is irreversible. Your efforts to improve the project have only made matters worse. It's a total. It's, it's a total. And all of these images are meant to show you how much you need Christ. The idea of your need to be rescued, right? Have you ever met a person who rescued a pet? They always tell the story, right? Oh, she was, she was here, and she was left on the street. She was abducted by aliens. Finally, she was brought, she looked horrible, and now look at her. Look at her, right? A, a rescue pet. The owner always loves to tell the story of the rescue, right? You're a rescue. You're a rescue. When God's telling your story in heaven, he's not like, she did so wonderful. She met all my standards. She kept all my... You're a rescue. All right? You're that frizzy little abused animal out there in the gutter that God picks up and washes off and brings into his family. You're a rescue. All these images are meant to show us what... You're a convict. You see, and if you disagree with all of this, then the pathway to heaven is clouded. You can't get there. Receive the free gift of eternal life. Because you must be justified before the judge, because you must be unshackled from your chains, and because you must be reconciled to your Creator. Are you going to heaven? If I asked you today, are you going to heaven, would you say yes? Don't settle for maybe. Don't settle for I think so. Nail it down today. It's never too late to tell God you're ready. Let me close by sharing with you a story of one of the most precious hymns, Jesus Paid It All, written in like 1865. Do you know the song, Jesus Paid It All? Maybe you don't know the story, though. Uh, Elvina M. Hall, good name, Elvina M. Hall, maybe we're related, I didn't even think of that, but Elvina M. Hall was sitting there at the end of church listening to her pastor pray for a long time. She got bored. She opened her eyes and she had this inspirational moment where this poem came into her mind from the sermon. So she opened her hymnal to a blank page, which you're not supposed to do, and wrote out a poem, right? She wrote out a poem. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. At the end of church, she walked up to her pastor and handed him the hymnal and said, I wrote a poem, you should read it. Earlier that week, a man from his church had come up and said, I wrote a song. We should sing it. The pastor held up the poem and the song later in his office that week and said, they go together. And that's how the song was written. That's how Jesus paid it all was written. Let me read that to you again. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
I thank you for this precious truth that heaven is free forever. How hard it is, how hard it was for me to get to the point in life where I could admit that I have fallen far short of your standards. And how hard it is for some in this room right now to swallow their pride and admit that they can't, that they won't, that they haven't, that they didn't earn their way to heaven. But I know that right now you are calling some men and women unto salvation. You are showing them their true need, the depth of their sin. They're trapped. They're incarcerated. They're walled off. They need you to set them free. They need you to make them right. They need you to welcome them in. And I know that some right now, they're, they're saying amen. They're saying that's true. I need that. And I just give them an opportunity in their own hearts to respond to what they've heard with the prayer of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. They may want to pray this, saying, Father in heaven, forgive me, for I have sinned and broken your law. Say that in your heart to God. Talk to him. Father, forgive me, for I have broken your law. Father, rescue me, for I am bound in sin. Father, reconcile me, for I can't find you. Jesus, save me. I pray, Lord, for those who are crying out for salvation. Fill them with joy, knowing that you will never leave them. You will never forsake them. You have washed their sins, though they were as scarlet and white as snow. Fill us with this joy of heaven. Fill us with this joy of Christmas, that our God would come down to rescue us. Thank you for the joy of salvation, the joy of all the earth. We pray this in Christ's mighty name.